I want to give you a bit of a snapshot of the sermon series we've done since 2020. So 2019 was actually just kind of a, a, a flyover Genesis to Revelation. We went through Sunday to Sunday in a reading plan, and we, we preached on passages that we had read that previous week to kind of put some pieces together on what God is working out. And then you think about this, uh, we went into 2020, and we did the book of Galatians. And the book of Galatians is a, you know, the statement is kind of, the law doesn't save. Law doesn't save you. From the book of Galatians, we went to the book of James, written by Jesus' half-brother. The book of James seemed to have a bit of a different take, didn't it? Meaning, uh, James's approach was much more like, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, you're doing well. And so we have James, who wasn't saying, don't worry about the law. He was actually using the law as a good thing to uh, explain how he wanted those in his audience to, to live. Listen to what it says. And if you break one part, you break all of it. Uh, but but he, had, he had a rather, I think, favorable disposition toward the idea of the law. We then did uh, the sermon. Well, we did Jonah. Uh, Jonah was four chapters. Remember Jonah? Yeah, like you kind of, if you sleep, you miss it because uh, it, was, it was just four weeks. Uh, but we did Jonah, and then we did the Sermon on the Mount for about six months, five or six months. And the Sermon on the Mount wasn't that Jesus essentially saying, I am the fulfillment of the law. And then as he was teaching about the law... He would, he would, in a sense, he would expand it. You know what I mean? Like, and what I mean by expand is he would, he would take a statement and then he would broaden that statement to include the actual effect of the heart, the way the heart interacted with that law. And so it wasn't good enough if you read the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is teaching in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It wasn't good enough for Jesus to just quote the one line and say, hey, don't do this, do that instead. But he was like, no, 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 I'm going to say, if you've ever looked at someone lustfully, if you've ever hated in your words, you're already a murderer. And so he, he broadened this out to where essentially you just go, well, golly, well, who in the world can, can do that? And so we've had really for the better part of now two and a half going on three years, we're in Exodus now, we have had a lot of sermon series on the idea of the law. And if you're in our reading plan with us and you're in a D group or you're doing the memory work, then you just you memorized this year Psalm 19. And in Psalm 19, you had the verses that Kenny read, which talk about, man, it talks really, really well about the law, doesn't it? I mean, it, it doesn't say, it's not like law's bad. Remember last week's sermon, Roosevelt preached and law doesn't save, don't have the law under, under a new thing. And so, so I, I, would, I would venture, if you're like me, you kind of put all these statements together and you're like, this is not consistent. Am I supposed to like the law? Am I supposed to not like the law? Does the law have any value? Or does it have no value? Like, well, what am I supposed to do when I take these statements of like, the law of the Lord is perfect. And then last week I'm told, the law doesn't save. And part of this is because most of us, if not all of us in the room are Gentiles. And we're pretty, as I say, we're late to the game. <laughs> Like, we're late to the game in the story of salvation, though we were included the whole time, but we're Gentiles, and we're coming into this thing, and we're trying to make sense of millennia of people living for the Lord, uh, and, and, and we're going, yeah, and now, now let me give you my take on it. And so we don't have as developed of, I would say, a vocabulary for what we mean when we say the law, or what, what the scripture might even mean when it says the law. Our, our vocabulary is pretty small. It's like when you're, you're uh, training a, a child, and... I remember uh, hearing this gentleman say one time, like, you know, his kid knew what an eagle was, didn't necessarily know what a buzzard was, you know, and, and two different kinds of birds. One's a little more majestic than another. Uh, but one, you know, flying overhead, you know, surrounding the thing they're going to eat. Um, and his son looked up and said, eagles! Why? Because he didn't have a vocabulary developed enough to know what a, you know, carnivorous, weird, like, you know, dead animal-eating bird was. So, like, I get it. Right? So, so we have a lexicon where we go, law, right? Like, law of the Lord is perfect, cool. Law doesn't save, cool, right? And, like, in our heads, we have to hold all these things together. And so wanted to take in our Exodus series as the Lord has brought the law, the Mosaic law to the people, wanted to take some time to, to fit some pieces hopefully together for us to try and get at this idea on, on 
what's the value of, of the law? And, and when we say it, what do we, what do we mean? What's the value of the law? Specifically for a room full of Gentiles, right? Like, like it, it, what is a Gentile? A Gentile is a non-Jewish person, right? So, so a, non, a non-Jewish person who's reading all these things in the law. I mean, we've done Galatians. We've done James. Galatians has a really uh, Jewish focus in what it's trying to talk about. You kind of have to know that history some. James, half-brother of Jesus, leader of the church in Jerusalem, really connected to the law. Jesus, the fulfillment of the law. We're in Exodus, Right, Moses, the giving of the law. There's a lot of stuff we've been reading over the course of now over a hundred Sundays. And we're going, how, how, can we, how can we connect these maybe better? That's the goal today. How, do we, how can we connect these better so we understand more of how these pieces fit together? So what we want to do is just break that down. We're actually going to be in multiple passages today to work through this, make some points. If you want to just stay with me in the room and just listen as we go along, that's totally fine. I don't know if you'll be able to flip your Bible fast enough. Some of you will flip your phone fast enough, but we'll just see. Some will be behind me, some won't. But the first thing that we want to say is this. The law provides significant value to the believer. Okay, now now hang with me here because we just said last week, no value, but we have to differentiate the value to save and the value to reveal something, right? So, so sometimes we don't have that, that language worked out. The value to save, it doesn't have. The value to reveal something, it does have. And so it does provide significant value, even today, to the believer. But the law is not always the law as you might be trying to hear it as you hit your ears. So just broadly, the law is Torah, which is instruction, it's just instruction. In fact, the kids' ministry, if you're here and you finally have your kids in kids' ministry for the first time in a while, thanks for checking them in. Thanks for trusting us with that. And uh, Lindsay, who's one of our leaders in the kids' ministry, she goes, one of the things we're going over today are classroom rules, right? Ways we want to operate. Ways we want to instruct the kids on what to do and what not to do. So there's the idea of the just instruction <clears throat> that exists. Then there's also a different understanding of the law, which would be the Mosaic law, the specific law that showed up on Sinai, delivered by God through Moses to the people that taught them how to live as a nation. So God had ways, he had instruction, ways to live, but then as he established the people and was going to bring them into a land, he had another way that he wanted them to operate and live. So the Mosaic law is a different instruction than just generally instruction, right? It was a specific way that God was interacting with his people. In fact, if you're in our reading plan right now with us, what just happened last week but the Babylonian captivity? Like that's what we read. Now that is, if, this, if you're putting this at roughly 1446, 1445 B.C., Babylonian captivity, 586 B.C., so we've had a big run. We've had centuries of disobedience before the Lord, in essence, brought his end of the covenant to bear in the Mosaic covenant, which was, if you do not follow, I will take you from your land. And so we're reading, after hundreds and hundreds of years of disobedience, we're reading the consequences of the people not walking with God as he had intended to walk. And as we read in chapter 19, they were like, we're going to do it all, right? They were so excited about doing everything that God had said. They were sure they were going to do it. But there's another way to understand God's laws, we think of instruction, which is just his ways. God's ways, that he has a way that he communicates. He has a way he wants his people to live. And that's a consistent, as well, understanding of the law. So we need to know when we read about the law, like, are we talking about the Mosaic law? Is that what is perfect? Because clearly it wasn't perfect. But are the ways of God perfect? And is the God who is revealed in the Mosaic law perfect? Yeah. It doesn't save, though. But look back. Abraham comes before Moses. And in Genesis chapter 17, verse 1, we read this. He's called Abram at this time. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. 
Well, how's Abram going to do that if he doesn't know how, like what? We understood earlier that his, his righteousness came by faith. But when God says, walk before me, there has to be some knowledge of God and his ways in order to even do that. So God is expecting even Abram, right? Father Abraham, he's expecting this guy to walk in his ways before there is you know, even a people. Hundreds of years before there is the Mosaic law, there's the expectation that the person God chose to bring the nation about will walk in his ways. Right? So, so that's not Mosaic law expectation. That doesn't come across until centuries later, after Egypt. But there's still the expectation that God wants Abram, Abraham to walk in his ways. Now we get in the Mosaic Covenant, which is really, Exodus 20 through 40 is going to do three things. It's going to basically give us the law and the ceremonial system some, though we're going to get more of that in other books. But the law, how to operate. There's the golden calf situation, which is going to come next week. And there's the instructions on the tabernacle, which is how to worship. So it's really easy for us to kind of run through the first 20 chapters of Exodus and go, got it. This is great. And then we go 21 through 40, and the only time we really know what's going on is back at the golden calf. And we're like, golden calf, I understand that. Right? I can do that. But then the stuff that comes before it and after it, the law and the tabernacle. I mean, seriously, one person asked recently, uh, when I was reading about it, why did God give days more instruction on the tabernacle than he did to create the world? Like, why did, why, why did he give weeks of instruction when clearly this could have happened much more quickly? Right? That God goes with great detail into how the tabernacle is going to be constructed. Down to like the tent peg and how the pieces are going to be assembled and how many you're supposed to have and how high and how long. So he gives really specific instruction. So we're going to do a law sermon. We had one last week, a law sermon. Golden calf, tabernacle sermon as we finish out Exodus. But we have the ways of God, as you see, walk before me, be blameless. We have the Mosaic law, which is given here in Exodus as a way to understand how the nation was supposed to be before him. How they were supposed to relate, how they were to relate to others, how they were to relate to one another. And you might have heard maybe kind of this threefold understanding where there were like civil laws, where the, your laws on how they're supposed to operate as a society, ceremonial laws, laws on how they were to worship, and then moral laws, which were laws that were kind of abiding truths based, that were all, always the case. And in fact, when you take the Ten Commandments, almost every commandment is repeated in the New Testament. Right? So, so a lot of those move right on over into the New Testament and are used instructively to understand more of the Lord. So we're talking about the law, law providing significant value, the law as the ways of God. And then when the nation of Israel comes, it is the, not just the, it's the ways of God expressed through a nation, and how that nation is going to live, and how that nation is going to worship, and how that nation is going to relate. And that's that covenant where they go, we're going to do what you say, and if we don't, we'll be punished, and like, we get it. But it's interesting because if you go into the New Testament, depending on where you read, there's going to be some really solid statements about the law. And by solid, I mean affirming, affirming statements. So 1 Timothy 1.8 would go like this. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. And in that essence, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, he's talking about it in the, in the way that it will restrain evil. It will restrain evil. Remember Roosevelt last week, he goes, I don't need a speed limit because I don't speed. I need a speed limit because I, I do. Because I'm a speeder. And so there's a sense in which laws restrain us. Kids in the room, have your parents ever told you not to do something and you really, really wanted to, but you didn't do it because you knew you had to answer to mom or to dad? Right? There's that, I, I don't want to have to, I just don't want to have to answer to dad. Right? So it restrains, the law restrains the behavior because you don't want to cross it. So there is a sense as God's revealing the way he wants to work that there is evil restrained because the law is there. So if one uses it lawfully, abiding by it, doing what it says, now we know in our hearts, the law does in us, and we see it, 
it, it incites sin. It doesn't create sin, it incites sin, right? That sin's kind of there, and when a law shows up, it becomes the way that, that sin goes, I want to do that. You tell me no, well, I'm going to say yes. You don't want me to do it, but now I kind of want to do it. I wouldn't have wanted to do it if you told me not to do it, but that's not true because there's stuff that you know you shouldn't do that you still want to do. So we know the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Speaking to a group about, again, that idea of how we do not succeed at reaching the law, the Apostle Paul wants to make it very clear that the law is not evil. He says this in Romans seven twelve. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. You might not be holy, righteous, and good, but don't blame the law for your problems. They reveal your problems, but don't blame your problems on them. Right? So that's, a, that's a harder thing to do. Well, if there weren't a law about it, I would have. No, that's not how that works. So 1 Timothy, Paul's saying this is good. And in Romans, Paul's saying, no, the law can be good. And then James, the half-brother of Jesus, says this. If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality or favoritism, because that's coming in the vein of favoritism in James chapter 2, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Why? Because there's a unity to the one who created it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you don't commit adultery but you do murder, you have become a transgressor. And so he gives the conclusion. So speak and act as those who would be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to those who have Shown no mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, why would James be saying that? Well, for one, he's going to talk about how as it reveals God, it is good. But the law, let's not forget this. Unlike our world where if we have a law written and someone doesn't like it, well, what can happen? A body of elected officials will change it. They change the law. With God, who is consistent, he doesn't go, oh, no, you can murder now. It's cool. You can break this now. That's fine, right? He is consistent. His character is consistent. His way is consistent. Now, there is a change that happens between Old Testament and New Testament, right? Ceremonial law doesn't save. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. There are laws that, that move over in their, in their intent, in their heart, so much, in as much as they reveal God to us and show us his ways. And so you have a Paul or you have a James who do speak well about the law. Why? Because it's revealing God to us. And as we saw last week, it does show our need. We, don't, we may not think about it like this. The law is not grace. Grace is grace. But God revealing the laws and setting the expectation and showing us our failure and how we don't measure up, that is gracious. Because he provides the way. Right? So, so we recognize that we do not ascend to what God has said. But the same way as we read them and we hear Psalm 19, it's pure, it's perfect, it's good. Why? Because it's God's. Because it's God's. The ways of God, the knowledge of God, the understanding of God as we walk with him. We want to walk in his ways. And he reveals that to us through the scripture. Old Testament and New Testament. As we read, we can, we can read and learn about the character of our God. For example, he had laws about, now some of the laws you read are going to be a little bananas. I get it. Like There's some where I just go, I'm not sure how to actually go with that. Uh, but you'll read some where you know, he has ways he expects. And again, if you were reading with us, like reading Jeremiah with us, God is mad that the Israelites have held on to slaves forever. He actually says, you're supposed to let them go, and you haven't. Right? He gave them a way to let them go. You're supposed to let them go, and you haven't let them go. You've just held on to them. So they're not following in his ways. What can you learn about that? What can you learn about the character of God when you see that? 
is that, that even in that, God has ways that he expects his people to operate, which is going to be different than the ways of the cultures around them. And he provides a way to get to a different and, I would say, better station. He provides those types of ways. Now, the Apostle Paul, coming along later, and we'll say this in 1 Corinthians, he goes, you can remain where you are because grace can get to you anywhere. So you don't have to become this person before you can be saved. You, you don't have to become this type of person. If you were a slave, grace finds you there. If you were free, grace finds you there. If you're married, grace finds you there. It can find you anywhere. So you don't have to ascend to find it. But we can read, as we go in and we're reading Jeremiah, we can read something about God's heart for people to live freely. As we read about the way that people can become a part of the nation, what do we see in that? But that God wants others to know him. And that he would be gracious to even provide ways for them to know him. So even as we read in the, New, or in the Old Testament, we're reading about these laws, and we get, sometimes I would say bogged down. We can always go, what is this, what is this showing me about God? What is this showing me God loves? What is this showing me God is interested in? God cares about? Because he gets really specific. You heard Roosevelt last week. This is the only nation whose laws were given to them by God. Telling them how to walk. And we can read and we can engage with our Lord as we as Gentiles read that and go, I'm a Gentile. I don't know how to do this. You go, good, you don't have to know how to do that. In fact, in fact, Acts chapter 15 addresses this very issue. We preached on this years back. Acts chapter 15, I love it. I think it was the fall of 2018. But in Acts chapter 15, we have this passage called the Jerusalem Council. Right? It's like that's what we call it. I don't think they call it that. The Jerusalem Council. Which is funny because everybody at the Jerusalem Council, every ecclesiologian in the world, uses the Jerusalem Council to defend their ecclesiology, the way the church is structured. The Presbyterians are like, look what they did here. And then the independent churches are like, look what they do. And uh, Episcopalian governance is like, look what they do. So we all use Acts chapter 15 to defend the way our church is, which always makes me laugh because I'm like, that got us nowhere. We all still kind of do what we think is best. <clears throat> Acts chapter 15, Paul has been going around, right? And he has been preaching. But they're having to deal with the fact that all these Gentiles are coming to faith. They don't have the history. They don't have the law. They don't have the instruction. They don't know. So all these Gentiles are coming to faith. And quite honestly, they're a little annoying. They're, they're, they're just messier and uglier. They're visibly more sinful, like, like visually. You just, they just do different things. They operate in different ways. And they came out of all kinds of weird idolatry. And now they're coming to faith, and there's this issue. Remember the issue? The issue is... Do we circumcise Gentiles who have come to faith? Remember that issue? Do we circumcise Gentiles who have come to faith? And this is a big deal, right? Be glad that they had this conversation when they did. Do we do this? Because circumcision in the Old Testament was the mark of the covenant. It was the mark of God's covenant. And so they're trying to figure out, well, we have all these Gentiles pouring in. For a while, the church was almost strictly Jewish. Right? And so, so now they're trying to figure out in Acts chapter 15 what to do. And they're debating it. Paul's there, and James is there, and everyone's trying to figure it out. <clears throat> and they come to the conclusion that no, I mean, we couldn't keep the law. We're not good at keeping the law, and we grew up with it. How in the world should we ever expect them to keep the law? How should we ever expect a group of Gentiles who, quite honestly, again, are late to the party, how should we expect them to go back and do that? I tell you, if you're a Gentile here this morning, the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15 is one of the best understanding of, like, of, of practical theology. Because they're taking a significant issue, which is our salvation in Jesus, and they're trying to run it through what they know, which is a, a system. And they're going, I don't think we can actually require anything of them. And they actually gave three things, right? They said... Anything other than like meat, uh, things that are strangled, things with blood, and sexual immorality. And what were they doing there? They were going, you still need to stand out. And you need to operate in a way that, that allows good fellowship with fellow Jewish people who are going to be really, really bothered if you live that way. And so they said, we, we, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us that we put no burden upon you except for operating in these ways. That was Acts chapter 15. 
That was a Jew-Gentile relationship. Jewish people were still getting circumcised. They were still, at times, following the law. In fact, here's the screwball thing of Acts chapter 15 into 16, is that when the Apostle Paul, in his second missionary journey, he grabs Timothy. Remember 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy? He grabs this younger guy to train him up as a pastor for churches, and the first thing he does is circumcise him. And you're just going, wait a second. You guys just were about to punch each other in the nose over whether or not you need to do this. And the first thing you do as you go and deliver this news to the Gentile churches is that you circumcise Timothy, who's half Jewish, half Gentile because of his family, like the marriage of his mother and father. You go and do that. But if you read in Acts chapter 16, it will say he does it because of the Jewish people. Why? so that he can minister amongst them without causing a hurdle. And we might forget 1 Corinthians chapter 9, where the Apostle Paul says, to those who were under the law, I became like one under the law. And to those who were free from the law, I will live free from the law. Because now... For Paul, he loved, he did love the law, the ways of God. He knew it didn't say, but he was zealous for the ways of God. And he understood it and he trained in it. But now what are they? But a way in which he can minister to Jews, minister to Gentiles. He now sees this differently. And so, yeah, he's going to circumcise Timothy, not because he must, but because he wants to be a more effective evangelist amongst the Jewish people as he goes and ministers. Acts chapter 15 was addressing the must they. Not can they, must they. And that's important. That's, again, one of those distinctions that we don't have. Must they do this? No. It is unfair to put this burden on them because, in essence, what we're doing is putting them into a system that we can't ourselves keep. So, no, we cannot Go back to that system for them. But, and here's an oft, or not oft, I say rarely, let's flip it, non-oft thought about passage. Paul goes through his three missionary journeys in the book of Acts. And this is what happens. In his three missionary journeys, he gets to this spot in Acts chapter 21. Paul wanted to get back to Jerusalem after his third missionary journey so he could be with his people Uh, for like the Passover. He wants to be there and celebrate in Jerusalem, which sounds incredibly Jewish, doesn't it? It sounds incredibly Jewish. He's not sitting there going, oh no, I'm fine. He's like, I want to get back and be with my people. I want to get back and celebrate this in Jerusalem. He's not demanding anybody else do it. He's not demanding that any Gentile do it. He's not asking for anybody to participate. But because of who he is and his burden to see people come to know Jesus and his burden to be in his nation with his people at a time that his God has has encouraged them to do that, he's trying to get back. And there's nothing wrong with that. He's trying to get back. Not because God will love him more. Not because God will love him more. That's the piece we have to remember. He already knows Getting back to Jerusalem in time to celebrate a feast is not to gain God's love. It's a way for him to express his faith. In the same way, many of you have ways you express your faith. Don't raise your hand, but how many of you, first thing in the morning, read the Bible? Where does God tell you to do that? Where? You go, well, Jesus got up early. One time we have record of Jesus getting up early. So you're going to get up 365 times early and do that? Is that why? Well, Jesus got away with his father. Yes, he did. Are you going to go to a mountain? He went to a mountain. Are you going to get out in a boat and go into the middle of the ocean? No, 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 no. Or sea, sorry, sea, not an ocean. Are you going to get out and do that? No, I'm not going to do that. Are you going to take 12 people and go be itinerant for three years? I'm not going to do that. What is a morning quiet time but a way you express your faith? It's the way you express your faith. Not demanded. I mean, we're reading about people who didn't even have printed Bibles. We're in a different world now. It's an expression of your 
heart for God and your desire to know him? Why do we memorize? Where, where are we commanded that we have to memorize a verse a week like we do in our reading plan? Nowhere. But we also know that as we internalize the word of God, it has benefit for us. It helps us. It guides us. And so we commit to do it. There's all kinds of ways that you express your faith that aren't demanded, but are beneficial. Are beneficial. The problem comes with what is beneficial for you becomes a law for others. Right? I do it like this, so you must do it like this. I give like this, so you must give like this. I serve like this, so you must serve like this. I teach like this, so you must teach like this. I do this, I love this, so you must love this. I hate this, so you must hate this. Once how we express ourselves becomes a law unto someone else, we have crossed a line and bound somebody to something that God does not require of them. But at the same time, we can say, hey, here's how I do it. You might be benefited by it. In fact, I think you would. But if you say, no, that's not for me, okay. I mean, the Lord is working this stuff out in all of us. It's taken me years and years sometimes to shake off old habits and establish new ones. I'm still going. So we're in Acts chapter 21. I want to go back to that. Acts chapter 21, Paul wants to get back. He gets to Jerusalem. And I want to read this to you because they actually refer to Acts chapter 15. But Acts chapter 21, starting in verse 17. When we, because Luke is writing the book of Acts and he's with Paul. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James. We read James, didn't we? And all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Remember Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, though he certainly would preach to Jewish people as well. And when they heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed, they are, if you're reading along with me, what does that say? Zealous for the law. So praising God for the conversion of the Gentiles, he's going, hey, in our context, we have a bunch of Jewish people who are zealous for the law. Not unbelievers, zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to their customs. This is like the telephone game. Acts chapter 15, they had a, a message to deliver to Gentiles. And then what starts to happen is as the news circulates, they go, hey, I heard that you're also telling Jewish people that the law is stupid. That it doesn't matter. That's the telephone game. I mean, have you ever been in a meeting and then somebody comes to you after that meeting or they hear about something that was said and they're like, well, I heard in that meeting you guys all punched each other in the face and then said, I love you. Like, that was a weird thing about the meeting, but I heard you guys did all that in your elder meeting last week. Like, that's what you did. And you're like, what? Right? Like, it just gets back and you go, that's not what we did. That's not how it worked. So the rumor has been spreading that Paul's running around telling Jewish people not to read and love and even at times be zealous for the law. They go, we, hear, we know what you've ta taught Gentiles, but now they're thinking you're applying that to Jewish people. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong as you read through it. I don't find a passage in Scripture where Paul is instructing Jewish people to say the law is bad. I don't find a time where Paul is specifically instructing Jewish people that they should have no interest in it. I don't find it. Now, that's not to say that he is shackling them, that he's burdening them with salvific obligation. You must so that God will. Right? That's not what he's doing. Nowhere does he do that. But Paul's ministry at this point in time is geared towards the Gentiles. And that's where he's ministering and that's where he is teaching. So in verse 22, what then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you, are, that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. These are the elders in Jerusalem. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men, purify yourself along with them, pay their expenses. They're assuming, many assume this is a Nazarite vow, so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance to the law. Interesting, huh? This is Acts chapter 21. This is after the Jerusalem council. 
But for as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, from blood, and from things that have been strangled, from sexual immorality. So they referred their letter from Acts chapter 15. Then Paul took them in. The next day, he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. So not only does Paul go into the law with them, but he actually pays their way. What? What? He says just a couple of chapters later that he has lived with a clear conscience. Why? Because something has flipped for Paul. Remember this. He is concerned about the mission of Jesus' name to the nations. He will unintentionally or intentionally put no burden before somebody. If this will help me minister here to be a part of this, to pay their way, sure. Okay, I'll do it. If I go somewhere and they want me to preach and they say, hey, and we would prefer you wear a jacket. Okay, what am I going to do? No, I'm not going to do that. You don't owe me. I'm free in Christ. You just go, okay, why? Because when something does not have power over you, doing it or not doing it is not a concern. You belong to something else. This is where Paul says in Romans, we're not under law. We're under grace. Yeah, I'll do that. It was quoted last week about meat sacrificed to idols. What does the apostle say? If me eating meat offends somebody at your church, I'll be a vegetarian forever. I don't care. It's food. We in our world today, we don't have that perspective very often. We want to prove someone else wrong. We want to convince them that their position is wrong and that they should change it. There are few times in Scripture, few times, where Paul is trying to convince somebody that their position is wrong, and it is only when the glory of Jesus is on the line. When he will be misunderstood, and if following this will prevent people from putting their faith in him, no. That is why he had no issue rebuking Peter. This is the Galatians rebuke where, where Peter was living freely because he knew that he didn't have to follow food laws anymore because remember God revealed to him in the sheet that came down that everything was clean. God revealed that and so Peter now knows he can do that. But then when Jewish people would show up, he'd be like, oh gosh, I don't want to get in trouble. And that was his heart. I don't want to get in trouble. I don't want to look bad in front of these guys. So he changed his course because he was afraid of how people would view him. And so Paul rebukes that. You don't live in fear of what God has made clean. You don't live in fear of that. But for the sake of the mission, if it helps me to go under a vow so that the church in Jerusalem is not bothered by my presence, okay. Okay. Sure. Doesn't save. Already been saved. You need me to do that? I'll do it. Acts chapter, mark it down. Acts chapter 21 is wild. It's wild. Like the whole end of the book of Acts and how and what goes on because people are like, Paul, we don't think you should go to Jerusalem. He's like, I'm going to go. Leave me alone. Right? So, like, they're actually like prophesying, don't go. It's going to go badly for you. And he's like, I don't care. I have to go. I must be with my people. So he goes. Then they get there. He actually shows up, gets put in prison. And that's how the rest of the book of Acts ends. And he'll still say, Clear conscience. Clear conscience. Because I'm not binding myself to these things. I'm doing them for the sake of the mission. I'm doing them for the sake of the mission. Now, man, that's only point one. I have three points. It's going to go way faster after this. I told the kids ministry team I have to end earlier because they're going to kill me if not. We have more kids in there now than we've had. I'm going to get murder balled if if I don't do this. So if the law was good, okay, if it's good that it reveals God's character, his ways, we have a knowledge of him, it restrains sin, it shows us our need, it moves us to Jesus, if it's good, well then what does God hate about it? He hates its misuse. 
He hates his mis- its misuse. And this is consistent. Old Testament and the New Testament. He hates its misuse. He hates it misused as mere performative function with no concern of the heart. Because Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, saved by grace through faith. Right? That's a heart issue, isn't it? And so they operate in the ways God has revealed for them to operate, but they don't operate going, if I do this, God will love me. God loves them because he's in a covenant relationship with them that he himself established with Abraham. The expression of that for centuries is the Mosaic system. But it reveals to them their need and their sin. But listen to what Amos, Amos, I don't think Amos signed up for the job that the Lord gave him. But listen to what Amos says in Amos chapter 5. This is the Lord through him. I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. What does he say? I don't care if you're doing the ceremony, if you are not concerned about the heart. I am disgusted and despised by you thinking that mere performative ritual is somehow going to make me love you more. A transformed heart is concerned about justice. It's concerned about being right and living right. Not just doing the things. Not just following it because you feel like you should. To hear those words of the Lord through Amos, I hate, I despise your feast. But you told us to do them. You told us to do them. These are your things prescribed. They're your sacrifices. They're your offerings, God, and you hate them? Why? Because God's concern has always been the heart, not the behavior. Not the behavior. Would God be pleased with a sacrifice done in faith? Yes. Yes. Would he be pleased with a faithful Jewish person living under that system, we're going back in time, under the Mosaic system, would he be pleased with that person living in that way? Yes, yes, he would. Through faith, expressing his or her heart to his God. But where they just wake up and go, okay, what is on the checklist today? Got to do this, got to do this, and just going through it like a performative function? No, no. In the New Testament, the error, the deadly error, is that through the obedience of the law, you get some extra righteousness, some extra thing added onto you. If you go into the Mosaic system, it's better for you. So you have your faith in Jesus, and you add to your faith in Jesus an expectation of doing certain things. I had a conversation with somebody a couple weeks ago. He goes, do you believe in the tithe? I asked him if he gave. We were talking budgets. He goes, do you give? I said, yeah. I said, hey, we talk about giving. And he goes, my view on giving is probably the same as yours. So what is your view? He goes, I believe in the tithe. I said, I don't. He was like, what? I said, no, I don't. Why? Like, I don't live in a system like that where my governing officials are paid by the tithe and my sacrifice is paid by the tithe. And like, doesn't the price of meat fluctuate? I sacrifice something one day and it costs X amount and lose out on this. Another day it might be worth way more or way less. You put a percentage on what the expectation of the giving and sacrificial life of an Old Testament person was, it is far more than 10%. Gross or net, I don't care, far more. So yeah, I don't believe in the tithe. He goes, why not? I said, because I think Jesus demands more, honestly. I think his model of generosity is much more than 10%. And we might we not be able to get there, but we could start somewhere and try to get there. When we get there, try to exceed it. Why? I would rather somebody give 3% joyfully than 10% angrily. Like, <clears throat> I don't want that. Why? Because the expectation is heart. 
his heart. So Galatians 3, 1 through 6. Oh, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing in faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. You will not get to salvation through the law. You will get an understanding of God's ways, which will point to your inability to ascend, revealing your need, which by God's grace then points you to the place you need to go to solve the problem that was created, which is you can't close the gap between God's revealed expectation and his character and your sinfulness. You can't close that gap. Jesus who says, do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish but to fulfill. And by fulfill we mean he is the fullest revelation of it. The fullest. Like if you imagine, what does somebody perfectly abiding in the ways of God look like? It is Jesus. Like, how do they spend every minute in obedience? It is Jesus. That's fulfillment. Not just like, I did it, it's done. It, it's, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and earth, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. He is the revelation of God for us. The fulfillment of God's expectation. And through faith in him, God is satisfied with us. With us. Now I want to go to uh, Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. Romans 7 tells us that we are freed from the law, that we now live under the spirit, not in the old ways of a written code. So how does a life in the spirit work itself out? I think Titus 2, 11 through 14 help us here. And this is how we will end. For the grace of God has appeared. Grace appeared. Huh. How does grace appear? In a person. Right? In a person. The grace of God has appeared. Bringing salvation for all people. Again, who brings salvation? It is Jesus. What does the grace of God do for us revealed? Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Free from a written code, we are freed to the realm of grace which teaches and trains. Sounds a lot like a law, doesn't it? It teaches and trains us to reject ungodliness and live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are what? Zealous for good works. Zealous for good works. Grace has been revealed, teaching us to say no to some things and yes to other things as we await his return, as he is purifying for himself a people who are zealous to do good things for him. In fact, the book of Ephesians says he's predetermined what these are that we might walk in them. 
So through the way of grace, empowered by the Spirit, God has a way for us to walk. He has an expectation revealed in Scripture. The freeing thing when you read the Old Testament to not get bogged down, for example, in Exodus or Leviticus or Numbers where it might get more difficult for your Gentile mind to wrap around it, is to go, you know what? I don't have to do these. So what can I learn about my God from them? What can I learn about his heart and his character and his nature? What is he revealing about his ways even through this that I might know him, that I might walk with him? You don't just have to cut it out of your Bibles. You get to learn. You get to see his heart. You get to ask questions of him and go, why is it like this? All the while going, but you know what? I'm free. I'm free in Christ. The Spirit empowers me. Grace has been revealed, and it's going to teach me what I need to know. It's going to move me where I need to go, and that he is creating a people who are zealous to work for him. Glad to serve because their service is not for their status, but because God is working something and we're a part of it. So when we read, we can learn his heart. We recognize it's always been misused. Old Testament, New Testament, doesn't matter. The ways of God have been misused to control people. But free in Christ, by the power of the Spirit, we can walk with him in his ways. But we do have to then engage in his ways with his people together. It's so important that we just saturate ourselves in his ways. That we learn from one another, that we talk about the scriptures, that we're in community, that we're sharing and caring and engaging so that we can understand the heart of our God more fully and more freely. Because we all know, even even saved in Christ, we all know, I'm still not the person I want to be. And when that, they don't mean salvifically. They just mean, I still have some habits I want to kick. I have some ways I would like to honor the Lord. I have desires and longings. I want to be more generous. I want to be more loving. I want to be a better spouse. I want to learn how to parent better. We still have those burdens and desires within us. That's not bad. For those in Christ, it's evidence that God is working himself out in us to make us the people he wants us to be. So we can pursue him with joy and with zeal because we're not afraid that we're going to fall off one side or the other. We are free. So let's enjoy that together.